So some things to watch September 22nd, 2022, as we once again look at current events through the lens of biblical prophecy. Uh, it is, uh, of course, my desire that as we talk about some of these things, we would not only be informed of what's going on, but we would also develop and cultivate a hunger ourselves to go and uh, and look these things up and to begin to understand how the dots connect as we ultimately move from here to there. And what I mean by that is how we move toward what the Bible has to say in describing the last days, how it is that we move from where we are currently toward that. As, as I've mentioned many times, I don't believe that uh, some switch is just going to flip and suddenly the whole world is just going to suddenly unexpectedly be in uh, a whole different place. It will be unexpected to people who are not biblically uh, aware, those who are not students of Scripture, those who are not believers and, and don't spend time trying to understand these things. For many, they will be caught off guard by what happens. Uh, I think, uh, for example, the Great Reset is a uh, an agenda that has been unfolding for some time now, but there are many, both believers and unbelievers alike, who are not really paying any attention to that. And one day they will wake up, and some things that they uh, that we have generally taken for granted will suddenly no longer be that way. Uh, it won't be sudden to those of us who've been paying attention, but it will be sudden to those who really aren't paying attention. And so my hope here in uh, taking some time to consider some of these things is to help you develop for yourself. A good, well-rounded, again, non-sensationalized, just a good, solid look at what's going on around us, again, with the idea of, of Scripture as our guide to interpretation of what's going on around us, not looking at what's going on around us and interpreting Scripture by it, but rather interpreting what's going on around us by Scripture. So we look at headlines, we look at um, events that are taking place, we try to do our best to connect dots. Again, some of this is kind of hypothetical by definition because we don't uh, you know, until it finally unfolds, we won't really know what part these things ultimately had to play. But it is a little hard to imagine that some of these things uh, are not, in fact, uh, helping to pave the way for the things that are coming. So that being said, I'd like to talk to a few different topics today. Um, I guess maybe first let me lay out um, my own, uh, and not just my own, but where I'm coming from in regard to a couple of key events that define the last days. One of them is the battle that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I like to say that really 36, 37, 38, and 39 should really be read together. And then uh, chapters 40 through 48 speak of, uh, seem to very, uh, seem to plainly be talking about the Millennial Temple and, and what's going on at that time. Well, chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel speak to the idea of the regathering of Israel, uh, in unbelief, but yet also the idea of God uh, breathing out a spirit within them in this. And so there is, uh, I think, a dual fulfillment of that. Uh, first off, speaking to Israel's coming to the land in unbelief, but also then their condition during the time of the millennium. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, however, do speak of a battle that takes place that, by description, seems to speak of a local conflict with Israel and the neighboring nations around her, uh, extending as far north as Russia to the far north coming down, leading a group of nations, uh, hordes coming against Israel in that scenario that is, uh, that is unfolded. Uh, we've talked at some length about this, uh, in describing that scenario. I will invite you to go ahead and look at some of our previous prophecy briefs on that note. Um, but for here, I just want to speak to the idea that I believe and again, I'm not alone in this, but I believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39, that scenario that Ezekiel describes, is a separate event than um, and a preceding event 
to what is known as Daniel's 70th week, or that last seven-year period of time spoken of by Daniel in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, uh, elaborated on uh, in some detail in places like Daniel 7, and then uh, also in uh, the remaining chapters of Daniel after Daniel chapter 9, um, as well as Revelation 13, and and uh, and you could say 2 Thessalonians 2, and, and places like this, Matthew 24, uh, and such... Um, you know, obviously, Mark and Luke also have their um, their um, um, description of the Olivet Discourse um, or the the content of the Olivet Discourse in their own um, Gospels as well. So there's lots and lots of places in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament in regard to uh, some of these things. I think that the seventieth week of Daniel and Ezekiel thirty and thirty nine are two separate events. I think that Ezekiel 38 and 39 not only precede Daniel's 70th week, but I think in in large part are responsible for conditioning the world to be ready for Daniel's 70th week, which is the time when Antichrist is on the scene and the world ultimately gathers behind him. I think in large part that takes place because of God's direct intervention in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, we, uh, forgive me if I am repetitive, if you've heard me talk about this before, but for those who are recently joining us, just want to touch on this. Uh, when you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you will see, uh, as you read through there, a number of occasions where God makes the statement uh, either exactly this or something akin to this, that they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so, and, and he says that both to his own people, Israel, he intervenes on their behalf so that they will know that he is the Lord, but he also intervenes on Israel's behalf so that the nations attacking her will know that he is the Lord. And I think it is that element in particular that in some ways is going to have something to do with the arrival of Antichrist, who will rise up to stand against this God who has intervened in the affairs of men. Now, in a tricky sort of way, I think that uh, the Antichrist will be received uh, by Israel, as the scriptures say, um, I, I think in in some part because he may make the claim that he is somehow responsible for protecting uh, Israel during that time. Remember, the Antichrist is not leading the hordes in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but he will be leading a global, um, uh, or I shouldn't say, well, yeah, I mean, in, in many respects, a global uh, unified front against Christ at his return, but also will persecute Israel as well. And it remains to be seen how many nations will ultimately gather with him in that persecution uh, of Israel specifically, but certainly the nations will be gathered together as we see in um, uh, Revelation 13, 17, 19. Uh, we see the nations coming together, ultimately um, um, the, the kings of this world handing over their authority in this last hour to the Antichrist as he forms this coalition um, uh, against Christ when he returns in Revelation nineteen eleven. So, um so anyway, I think that these two events, Ezekiel 30 and 39 scenario and Daniel's 70th week, or really what most of the book of Revelation revolves around, are two separate events that are connected, I believe. We'll wait and see if they actually are and by, you know, uh, um, how much time maybe passes in between. Uh, now, another event that I think will take place, I think, before Ezekiel 38 and 39, but there's no way to know that for sure. It could happen after Ezekiel 38 and 39, but I, I am personally convinced it will happen before the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, or Revelation 6 is where I would put the beginning of that. Um, and that would be the rapture of the church. I do believe the church will be gone before the Antichrist comes on the scene. 
And, uh, and uh, we've talked about that as well. I know people have varying views on that. And so with, uh, with that understood, that's just where I'm coming from on that. So having said that, the first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, some pretty important news. I was just reading an article about this one. Literally, a friend of mine sent me another article. I'm going to link a couple of these uh, here in the notes. Um, and that has to do with Israel, and in particular, Prime Minister Lapid um, is planning to speak in front of the UN and reaffirm Israel's willingness and even desire for a two-state solution uh, there in Israel with the Palestinians. Uh, There have been varying versions of what that can look like, including the dividing of Jerusalem, um, the dividing of the land, and giving uh, portions on the uh, the western bank and also on the eastern uh, part of the country. Um, you know, uh, and so there, there have been varying versions of what that can look like. But the fact that there is a desire and a willingness on Israel's part to hand over land for peace, that has never really worked in history so far. Generally, you know, history has shown that this has really not served Israel well. And, uh, and to, to still be willing to do that, on the one hand, we understand their willingness to concede as much as they have to and to have a, a genuine lasting peace. But of course, the naivete in that is that there will be a lasting peace. Um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes that the nations surrounding her will come against her. And no doubt when it speaks of nations like Iran or Persia, as uh, she's referred to there in that section of scripture, um, that would also include um, elements, proxies like Hezbollah and Hamas uh, and such that are firmly entrenched in like the Gaza Strip and these places. So there, there is a... You know, I, I I'm not living in the midst of that, and so I I can't say that that it is actually shocking naivete, but it just seems like shocking level of naivete on the part of an outside observer watching this, considering um, you know the 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 hatred on the part of the governments of Iran and Turkey and and other surrounding nations uh, at one point that will gather against Israel again, led by Russia. Uh, Magog, as she's referred to in in, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, this will one day happen. Now, one of the reasons, by the way, as a quick aside, that I think that this is significant, not only in regard to potentially moving the ball forward toward that scenario and Ezekiel making its way out, but some of the, you know, a particular reason that you may not all be aware um, as to why it is that God intervenes so directly. Uh, Joel chapter three, verse two is one of those places where we get an indication to just how um, personally connected God makes himself with the land. Uh, look at, listen to this in Joel chapter three. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now, Jehoshaphat is, is sometimes seen as as, uh, as speaking of of Armageddon in this valley where this battle in the last days will take place ultimately. And that is, again, separate from Ezekiel 38 and 39. But notice here at the end of the passage, the idea that because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, God calls Israel his land. And the fact that nations have, have over the years divided up that land, and I wouldn't separate what's going on today from being part of that, the idea that there are those in our day willing to divide the land and allow nations that are decidedly against the God of Israel and the people of God, it's not their land to divide. It's his land 
They're dividing up my land, God says. I think that's a very significant thing. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, we see that the covenant that God made with Abraham was not only in regard to giving him descendants. He wasn't just going to give Abraham descendants. He wasn't just going to go from Abram to Abraham, father of many to father of nations. He was actually going to, he was covenanting this land to Abraham. And so he had set out this place, this parcel of land that was going to be the homeland for the people that ultimately were born of Abraham, and in particular, through Isaac, as the seed is ultimately uh, makes its way through that line of Abraham, not Ishmael, but ultimately Isaac. And so the Jewish people have this homeland that has been given to them by God. So when we talk about dividing it, and this is where I think Christians need to be very careful not to be on the wrong side of Genesis 12 too. Uh, you want to make sure that you recognize that when it comes to these ideas of peace plans with Israel, the, any thought of dividing the land is an affront to God because you are taking what is not yours, it is his, and deciding how it is to be used. Now, of course, we can say that about all the earth, but Israel in particular, this land of Canaan that ultimately becomes the homeland of God's chosen people, is a particularly precious possession. Uh, in the sight of God. And so I think it's important that we pay attention to those kinds of things and listen to the kind of language and what the peace plans involve and all this kind of thing. Uh, at the end of the day, the only, um, in, in the last days, there's one mention of a dividing of an area in Jerusalem uh, mentioned in Revelation uh, chapter, um, I always want to say 12, is it 11? Um, forgive me for it. I probably should have marked that down before I just said it out loud. But uh, where there is mention here of, um, I think it is Revelation 11, actually. Um, uh, yeah, it's the beginning of chapter 11 before the two witnesses come on the scene where John is given a measuring rod, a reed, uh, to go and to measure out a part of, of the Temple Mount area. And some part portion of it is to be kept outside because that's for the nations. Um, and so there has been... Um, uh, sort of a theory out of that, uh, that will one day, potent, this, this passage will one day potentially materialize in the form that the temple, the third temple that will be built in Jerusalem, will stand side by side with the Dome of the Rock, uh, because that area that the Dome of the Rock is on, uh, presumably is, a, is a, a, upon a part of the Temple Mount, that is going to be set aside for the nations in that. Uh, so something just to think about and look about, look for in the days ahead. So that being said, be paying attention to the days ahead, especially, and I didn't get the date on when uh, the Prime Minister uh, Lapid is going to stand up in front of the UN and make this pronouncement and, and reaffirm their willingness to and desire for a two-state solution for the sake of peace. Uh, you might want to watch that address and then pay attention to the news that follows and how that ultimately plays. Uh, Lapid one, at one point did try to reach out to Mahmoud, uh, Ahmoud Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, um, but that hasn't gone well. Abbas has accused uh, Israel of being guilty for of fifty holocausts uh, to the Palestinian people and all this kind of thing. So there's there's no love lost between these two. Um, but, but Israel is willing to try and make peace through these means. And unfortunately, I think again, that that is catastrophically naive, but I don't think it'll actually happen likely either. 
um, at least not in any lasting way, but that's just my own thinking. Okay, moving on to uh, another thing. I want to talk just a little bit about Russia and Ukraine, and in particular, the um, the call by the Ukrainian uh, Deputy Prime Minister, and, and by, by definition, Zelensky as well, is, um, there's, they're, they're in unity on this. The idea that, um, that uh, the United States and other nations, NATO allies, uh, need to threaten nuclear response to Russia, because Russia has now begun to speak of utilizing nukes in this conflict, and Putin has said it's not a bluff. Uh, and so just, uh, there's an article here in Newsweek, again, I'll link this here, but Mikhailo uh, Podolyak, uh, Zelensky's senior aide, requested that the U.S. and other allies outline the consequences of Russia using nuclear warfare in an interview with the presidential administration today in Kiev. <coughs> The other nuclear states need to say very firmly, this is, uh, this is Podolyak saying this, the other nuclear states need to say very firmly that as soon as Russia even thinks of carrying out nuclear strikes on a foreign territory, in this case the territory of Ukraine, there will be swift retaliatory nuclear strikes to destroy the nuclear launch sites in Russia. Uh, in other words, uh, Ukraine is calling upon her, uh, her allies in this conflict against Russia to say that if Russia even thinks about using nukes, we are to uh, ultimately threaten and, and even carry out nuclear retaliatory strikes. Now, this is careless language. It's bravado. It's sticking your chest out. But of course, Ukraine is under the gun. And there is, uh, of course, uh, these these two uh, areas in the Donbass region are ultimately being, um, uh, like Luhansk, they're, they're ultimately being um, coerced into becoming back under the Federation of, of Russia and such. And so Ukraine is in some ways probably feeling a certain measure of desperation and they're calling upon her uh, her allies in this, quote unquote, to threaten nuclear retaliatory strikes. Um, the fact that Putin is talking about nukes is a frightening proposition. Um, and and I, I, I say it really only to mention one thing here in relation to prophecy. And that is, again, when we talk about the scenario in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, Russia leads a, a group of hordes, a group of nations, hordes against Israel. And the way that the description in chapters 38 and 39, 39 particularly, begin to describe sort of the aftermath of this conflict, there are hints that there may in fact be nukes involved in that. We don't know that for sure. And again, I think the predominant feature of that conflict is God's own intervention. But that doesn't mean there won't necessarily be nuclear involvement as well. And so it may very well be that some of these kinds of reports are priming the pump uh, to sort of cause the global psyche to embrace the possibility that we might be on the brink of a nuclear conflict in Russia and Ukraine. And of course, the implications of that are far-reaching and will likely draw many nations together to get involved in this uh, on various levels. And so something you want to be paying attention to here, you want to be reading up on some of these things. Of course, uh, President Biden, in his recent uh, comments on 60 Minutes, which were interesting, uh, but in this particular regard, he did speak of uh, Putin's discussion of using nukes as being an outrageous thing and, and, uh, and um, you know, outrageous in the sense that the catastrophic, again, implications of this would, would be um, certainly very noteworthy. And so um, anyway, I'll, I'll link some articles there. Um, one last thing I'll do, I'm just kind of linking to the Biden connection here is that uh, the president, uh, just about a, a little over a week ago, almost 10 days ago, about, I guess, uh, nine days ago, 
uh, signed an executive order on advancing biotechnology and biomanufacturing innovation for a sustainable, safe, and secure American bioeconomy. That's a mouthful. Um, but basically what it is is a document that uh, the president is given authorization to go ahead and continue research and development of various levels of biotechnology here in the United States. Now, if you have followed any of our posts where we've talked about things like the Industrial Revolution, you know that one of the five pillars that this agenda, uh, and by the way, they call it the agenda, the um, an agenda to move the world toward a more sustainable future, uh, where we will not go back to the way things were, but we will build back better. That's not a Bidenism. That's actually a World Economic Forumism. It's a um, Prince Charles or King Charles III-ism now. It's a Klaus Schwabism. It's been spoken of by many uh, in those meetings and discussed openly as, as an agenda to move the world, not back to where it was, but rather to move forward in this rapidly shrinking window of opportunity, as it's often been referred to following the COVID pandemic. The, the, the global conditioning or the conditioning of the global psyche to sort of embrace the, the power of government and business to bring us to an entirely new place. Well, one of the pillars of that has to do with technology, and in particular, biotechnology and data in, in technology. Um, many of the advancements that are happening nowadays are on the nano level, the idea of nanotechnology, and the goal being that nanobots or nanotechnology in the form of little tiny, uh, infinitesimally small um, little robots that can move within your body to go to a particular place to do work inside of you, surgery essentially, uh, to create things inside of you that will fix heart valves and 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 clear blood vessels and 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 you know insert elements that you need to function and all this kind of thing. Um, there, of course, is technology like Neuralink that Elon Musk has been putting together. But there are other companies as well that are working on this. And there's actually a couple of competitors to, to Elon Musk. One in particular, I think, has actually um, been given uh, USDA um, or FDA approval um, uh, to, uh, not USDA, but FDA approval to go ahead and try limited human testing. Uh, the idea of a link between your brain and your body stimulating nerves to move uh, artificial limbs and those kinds of things. Technology connected with biology in order to function as one. Um, the fourth industrial revolution speaks to this idea of data and biotechnology playing a central role in, in both our global unifying, but also in terms of enhancing human beings uh, to be more than they ever could be otherwise, living longer lives and uh, having abilities and, and such um, uh, in, in ways that were just previously science fiction and that kind of thing. Well, in the United States, the reason I bring out this particular one, because again, this is, this is not something that is unique to the United States. This is actually something on a global level that has uh, been embraced. But in the United States, the reason I bring it up is because in the Great Reset and in the uh, globalized direction that the World Economic Forum and all the nations that are on board with the thinking behind these ideas, um, the idea of a global unified um, community is something that... Um, that will happen. We see this biblically. Uh, but in terms of how do we get there, well, the United States is one of those nations that really stands in the way of, uh, of making that happen. And so there is a very direct and clear, obvious attempt by some to sort of remove the United States from being in the place of prominence it has been 
and becoming really just like any other nation, uh, no longer a stopgap to the globalized agenda that, uh, again, groups like the World Economic Forum are pushing for. Um, and one of the ways that that has happened is through economics and the idea of, of bringing the United States to a place where we become more and more dependent on government. Citizens become dependent on government for handouts, whether it's through stimulus packages uh, or some kind of breaks that the government would give to help us offset the rising cost of living and all of this. Um, at some point, we will get to the place where citizens of the United States, by and large, will hand over their freedoms to a government who will take care of them. And that, of course, uh, at that point, we will cease to be literally, not just sort of figuratively, or and I'm not trying to just, uh, make this a bigger thing than it is, but according to things like the Fifth Amendment, which give per, uh, private property rights and, 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 and guarantee private property rights, I should say, not give, but guarantee. Government doesn't give us these things. Government's jo job through the Constitution is to guarantee these things. In other words, we're supposed to have them, and the government's supposed to protect that. Uh, fundamental distinction between those two ideas. Well, at some point, Americans will hand over those things and, uh, and, will, and will instead become subservient to a government who will basically be handing out everything that we need. And this is, of course, one of the other um, ideas that the World Economic Forum has been pushing, the idea of not owning anything but renting everything, and therefore we will not own anything and we will be happy. Um, and so uh, I just want to read a small section from... Uh, this executive order. And uh, again, I'll put a link in there. You can read it. Um, but this, according to the Office of the President for Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing, this is the goal, by the way. Um, uh, one of the goals is that biotechnology and biomanufacturing help us achieve our societal goals. The United States needs to invest, uh, or I'm sorry, for biotechnology and biomanufacturing to help us achieve our societal goals, the United States needs to invest in foundational scientific capabilities. We need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way in which we write software and program computers. Unlock the, biologic, uh, the power of biological data, including through computing tools and artificial intelligence. And he goes on. And this is, you know, there's a... Uh, what is this, like uh, 17 pages or something? Um, yeah, 17 pages or so just in the, uh, the executive order. And it just goes on talking about these things. Now, in order to reach our societal goals, well, here in the United States, our societal goals are set by society. We are a government by the people, of the people, and for the people, as Abraham Lincoln said. And so therefore, you know, if you didn't vote for those societal goals, if you didn't make your voice heard and say, this is what I want uh, our goals to be, then who did? Well, the government did, and those who are part of a globalized agenda want to see us fall in line with these ideas. Uh, think about the, you know, the potential that exists. And I don't say it in the positive way, but think about the potential that exists when you have the ability to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way we write software uh, and program computers uh, and that kind of thing. Unlocking biological data. What we're talking about here, in terms of practice. This is not a leap, by the way. These are technologies that are currently uh, in operation in some countries and are being tested in ours. Uh, we are talking about biotechnology that uh, is not only just like things like Neuralink that allow us to uh, use a computerized, uh, digital, uh, electronics-based um, system that will allow our brains to talk to our bodies and this kind of thing. But you're also talking about things like biometric access to things. In other words things not unlike the mark. 
things that may allow us to buy and sell because we now have a chip within us or biotechnology within us, in particular in our right hands or foreheads. I say our, not believers. I think believers will be gone by now, but as human beings who exist at that time, uh, this will be technology that will be offered as a way to demonstrate tremendous advancement and convenience. Look at what we can achieve now. And of course, everybody at that time will be so enamored with such a thing uh, that they will likely buy in. Um, but that's what we're talking about. Uh, nanotechnology, like we talked about, uh, inside of our bodies, potentially manipulating parts of our bodies uh, in order to make us last longer and be able to do greater things. Enhancing memory, allowing our brains to interact with things uh, without having to touch. We're used to this idea with Bluetooth on our phones right now. Uh, it's not a far leap to think about something like Bluetooth from our brain to entrance to a place, Bluetooth from some technology within us that uh, that connects with other technologies as we walk in and out of buildings and stores and public centers and those kinds of things, things that can uh, through which access can be denied if that biotechnology is attached to somebody who doesn't necessarily agree with the way the world is going. Um, again, think of things like ESG and that sort of thing. As we've talked about, environment, social, and governance, uh, if you're not on board with the uh, current thinking of the world around you, then you might be denied access to things. And how easy does that become when your technology is not separate from you, but is part of you? That now can become a very uh, easy technology to manipulate. And we ought not be so naive as to think that technological advancements uh, are, are necessarily neutral. Those who present those things and create those things and those who, uh, you know, have charge over those things are not always necessarily altruistic. And so we should not necessarily think that every technological advancement, and by the way, I am often wowed with technological advancement, but I'm not so naive to think that it necessarily always spells good things. So just a few things I wanted to talk about today. Uh, again, much more could be said, but uh, I think that might be enough for you to hopefully have your whistle wetted so you can uh, go ahead and, and, and follow up on some of these things. Again, I have a handful of links here. If uh, you are so inclined on our YouTube channel, if you look under the prophecy heading, or if you go to my website at parsonspad.com and you look on the sidebar and you'll see a list of different categories that posts have been posted to. Uh, if you look under prophecy, you'll see uh, some series that we've done. You'll also see a section called Prophecy Briefs. If you scan through those, you'll see all kinds of titles that touch on some of these things in greater detail. So thanks for watching and listening and giving me a moment of your time to consider these things. And again, this is not intended to sensationalize things and skies falling and all that kind of thing. As believers, we have a firm foundation. We are firmly footed uh, in the family of God. And so therefore, when we read about these things and we know that they're coming, this should not scare us, although they can be scary things. Instead, it should motivate us to recognize that the time is short and the time to be about the Lord's business, if you have not already been about it, is now. To recognize that the gospel going forth to all the earth, making disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus told us. These are our marching orders. We're ambassadors for Christ, as Paul would say, uh, urging people to be reconciled to God. And so we want to make sure that we're thinking in those terms and not just simply getting worried about what this might mean about my 401k or about my um, you know, uh, my access to things that I need or want, you know, these are real things we, we deal with on a daily basis. 
But at the end of the day, these things are an indicator that we are getting closer and closer and closer to that final kingdom that Daniel spoke about in Daniel 7, that he interpreted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, that, uh, that we would recognize that one day, that rock cut without hands, that kingdom that is overseen and installed by the ancient of days, uh, will come. As a matter of fact, is, and again, forgive me, I know I say this a lot, but you and I have been asking for this for a long time. Jesus told us we should be asking for this when he taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let that prayer not cease to be on our lips. Let it continually be on our lips, calling for that to come. Because when that kingdom is drawing near, what that also means is that the bride of Christ is about to be swept away by the bridegroom uh, to go and be with him forever and then to return when he comes to establish that kingdom, that millennial kingdom that we look forward to. So again, thanks for watching and listening. And Father, we just pray that you'd help us to see these things again uh, in understanding them through the lens of Scripture but also to see them not as things to be terrified by, but rather to be encouraged by. You've told us that the world is going a particular way, and it's going to look a certain way, and it's ultimately going to end a certain way, and it's going to be uh, ultimately uh, with the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom in the second coming that will finally bring about, uh, you know, short of that final last rebellion by Satan after that thousand years, Ultimately, we find these things on the cusp, on the threshold. Help us to realize the lateness of the hour and the needfulness of our uh, daily taking up our cross and following after Jesus and, uh, and just giving ourselves over to those purposes that you would have for us, much like Esther, for such a time as this. Help us to be of that mindset. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the great hope that we have, the sure hope that is coming. And again, we just pray that you'd help us in our hearts and minds to be ready to be about your business in these days as we move closer to that. So, Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.